Alrighty. So, we should be finished chapter 3 next week, and then we get into the church in heaven, the vision of the throne room the following week. So, we're finishing off the church of Philadelphia today, and next week is the church of Laodicea, so the last day's church, the not-so-good church. But for now, I'll just pray and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be in your word again. I thank you for your grace and your favor in showing us all this and helping us to know what is good and what is right and what is not. And so we can be corrected and we can be encouraged to live a life that is worthy of the calling that we have received and not get sidetracked or discouraged by the things that happen around us. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so very quickly, just the outline. Revelation one nineteen. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So, chapter 1, or part 1, Jesus reveals himself to John. And part 2, and the things which are, is chapters 2 and 3, that's the church age, that led us to the seven churches. And then part three, then the things which will take place after this, metatelta. And then we have, which I've been through a few times before, the rapture and the church before heaven and throne of God in chapters four and five. And that includes the scroll, Jesus taking the scroll, the title deed to the earth. And chapters six through 18, the seven year tribulation period, chapter 19 is the second coming of Christ when he comes back with us, the church. And then chapter 20, the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus on earth, and followed by the great white throne judgment. And then chapters 21 and 22 is the new heavens and the new earth with the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So that's basically what it says. And we've been through the first five churches already. So they are, well, the seven churches are Ephesus, the loveless church, Smyrna, the persecuted church, Pergamos, the compromising church, Thyatira, the corrupt church, Sardis, the dead church, Philadelphia, the faithful or missionary church, and Laodicea, the lukewarm church. So I'm just going to jump straight in. Uh, We did a bit of revision last week, so I'm not going to do it this week. And chapter 3, verse 7 to 13. So we're going to be reading Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, 
which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we covered verses 7 and 8 last week, so we just jump straight into verse 9. It says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. So, the synagogue of Satan. That's an endearing term, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to be called the synagogue of Satan? So, synagogue, who's that talking about? The Jews, yeah. So, these are people who say they are Jews, but are not. So, who are these people? Well, they're Jews who persecute believers. The Jews who persecute Christians. And Jesus said previously, and he reiterates here, they're not true Jews any more than Christians who persecute Jews are true Christians. Think about that. They're not true Jews any more than Christians who persecute Jews are true Christians. Verse 9, I will make them come and worship before your feet. So in the Old Testament, God promised Israel that the Gentiles would honor them and acknowledge their God. And you find that in Isaiah 45.14. And now the tables have been turned. Now the Jewish people will play the role of the Gentiles and acknowledge that God is working through the church. So he's kind of switched it around. Now, verse 9, it also says, worship before your feet. Does this mean that the Jews will be worshipping the Christians? No. And one verse that helps us is 1 Corinthians 14, 24 and 25. And it speaks of the unbelievers falling down in the midst of Christians to worship God. Not worship the Christians, but falling down in the midst of the Christians to worship God. So basically, this is a pattern here that the unbelievers will fall down to worship God in the midst of the Christians, but they're not worshipping the Christians, they're worshipping God. So it's not the Christians who are being worshipped, but God was worshipped in the presence of the Christians. Now this is important. What's the promise here that God is giving to these Christians in Philadelphia about these Jews who are persecuting them? Well, I'll keep going, see if you can pick it up. And verse 9 continues, and to know that I have loved you. Well, here's how I see it. Those who were once their enemies worshipped alongside of them. They're no longer enemies anymore. So what's the best way to get rid of your enemies? Get them saved. They now knew that Jesus had loved these people they once persecuted. The only way they would know that if they were now Christians. Again, the best way to destroy the enemies of the gospel is to pray that God would change them into friends. Now think of the Apostle Paul. He was the number one persecutor of Christianity and he became the number one defender of Christianity. He was a terrible enemy but a great friend. So never forget to pray for your enemies. All right, moving on to verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere. Literally it says, because you have kept the word of my patience. What does that mean? 
What does it mean to keep the word of my patience? Well, it talks about that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. I'm going to read it from the New King James as well as the New Living. It says, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. And from the New Living it says, May the Lord lead your hearts into a full understanding and expression of the love of God and the patient endurance that comes from Christ. So what is this patient endurance that comes from Christ? What is it that causes us to endure? Where is our source of hope? Well, let's explore this a little bit. Titus chapter 2, 11 to 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Now, that's what we're taught to do. But what's our reason for doing it? What's our hope? Verse 13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. When's he going to appear for the church? At the rapture. Right? Jesus will appear for the church at the rapture. So what does thinking about and believing in the rapture bring about in us? Blessed hope. Jesus is our hope. Another one? 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So again, what comforts us? It's the promise of the resurrection for those Christians who have already died, and the hope of the rapture for those who are still alive. So this is in the context of the second coming of Christ, and the rapture is a part of that. And one more. 1 Corinthians 15, 51-58 But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, verse 58, we've read all that about this wonderful promise that God has given us. It says, so, and it means therefore. Now, when you see a therefore, you've got to ask what it's there for, yeah? So, looking at what the promise is, and now what's our response? Well, so, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless or for nothing. So what causes us to be strong and immovable, to always work enthusiastically for the Lord? You've got it. The promise of the resurrection for those Christians who have already died, and the hope of the rapture for us who are still here now. Now, why does the Bible use the word sleep? All throughout the New Testament, it uses the word sleep. You know, this person fell asleep. This person sleeps. Jesus talked about Lazarus that way, for example. Why doesn't it just use the word die or death? Hmm. The Christian doesn't actually die. Okay. The Christian has nothing to fear in death. The Christian just goes to be with Jesus. So the idea of sleep is that at the end of the day, you're tired and worn out and you're looking forward to going to sleep. And when you wake up, you're refreshed and you feel great. And it's a beautiful experience most of the time. <laughs> and that's what Jesus is saying here. Death for a Christian is like going to sleep. You go to sleep and you're tired and you're worn out and you wake up on the other side of death, the physical death, and suddenly you've got a new body, or well, maybe not yet, maybe at the rapture, but you're in the presence of God. And you've got no more fears, you've got no more worries, and you've got no more sin. You're very much refreshed. So, coming back to keep the word of Jesus' patience, I think this is really important, which is why I'm spending a bit of time on it. It causes us to persevere. It's the reason we persevere. It's keeping the word of Jesus' patience. It's the hope of the resurrection and the rapture. That's what we should be focusing on. That's what gives us the hope to continue on. So we should be living in constant anticipation that Jesus could come back and snatch the church away to heaven at any time. Did you know the word rapture is not a Greek word, it's a Latin word, and the word in Greek is hapizo, and it's used to describe a pickpocket. A pickpocket would come and with stealth snatch your wallet away from you, right? And so hapizo means God is going to come with stealth and snatch the Christians away. Because he's going to do it when he's in the clouds, so the world won't see him. So like you don't see the pickpocket take your, if he's a good pickpocket, you won't see him take your wallet. Well, the world's not going to see Jesus take us. They won't see him until the second coming. When Jesus comes out physically to the earth, steps down onto the earth, if we do die before he comes back, that's okay because we have the hope of the resurrection. And we get our glorified bodies at the rapture, as we just read. But did you know that today more than 80% of the church no longer believes that Jesus will come back at the rapture and take the church away? And did you know that in the first two centuries, the topics of Jesus' second coming and the rapture of the church were central themes of preaching and writing? One church, it was the Church of Thessalonians, I think, 
Paul went there for three weeks and he'd already taught about the rapture and the second coming. This was like basic doctrine. Hey, Jesus is going to come back. He could come back any time. That's what he was saying all the way back then. It keeps us pure as we'll get into later. But what happened in the second century, people in the second century said, it's impossible for a nation to come back from the dead. It's unthinkable that the Jewish people could have a national identity again. It's got to be an allegory. We can't take this literally. It's got to be an allegory. Why would the Middle East be the focal point of a battle? Who cares about the Middle East? And this false teaching, this allegorical interpretation of prophecy, carried on throughout the centuries until the 1800s. And even the reformers like Luther in the 1500s, who came back to a literal understanding of salvation, still held on to an allegorical interpretation of prophecy, the scriptures on prophecy. So he wasn't consistent. He didn't come all the way back to a proper interpretation of the scriptures. And so they continued to believe that God had finished with the nation of Israel. But the Church of Philadelphia, it shows as we read this that, or indicates that we read this, that they have a literal understanding of prophecy. They are looking forward to the rapture, that Jesus will come back for them and snatch them away before those seven terrible years of tribulation. Now, does this mean that those churches who don't believe in the rapture won't be snatched away by Jesus? <laughs> no. So let's just take a quick look at the Church of Thyatira, prophetically the Catholic Church, and see how Jesus relates his second coming to them. So this is Revelation chapter 2, verses 20 and 24 to 26. It says, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. So, who's going into the great tribulation? Those who don't repent. And verse 24, still referring to the Church of Thyatira, the, the Catholic Church. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But, what does he say? Hold fast what you have till I come. And that's pretty much the same thing as what he says to the church in Philadelphia. And he who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give power over the nations. What's that a reference to? The millennial reign. So again, notice that it's only those who hadn't repented who would go into the tribulation, meaning those who didn't believe. The rest, those who have not known the depths of Satan, that false doctrine, are told to hold fast till I come. Now, the church of Sardis. How does Jesus relate his second coming to the church of Sardis? Now, remember, the church of Sardis had fallen away from their understanding of the scriptures, had fallen away from what they had received, which was the word of God, the Reformation. In verse 3 it says, in Revelation chapter 3, Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So, Jesus is saying about this church that it is not held fast to the truth of the Scriptures, and not interpreting the Scriptures correctly, especially concerning prophecy, that they will still go up at the time of the rapture 
but it will take them by surprise because they don't teach it, they don't believe it, and they think the rapture is a foolish idea. They have an allegorical approach to prophecy. As I said, over 80% of the church today has an allegorical approach to the scriptures that are prophetic. So because they weren't expecting the rapture, Jesus will take them by surprise when he snatches all the true believers who are the church away. So unfortunately today, most of the church is going back to this allegorical interpretation of prophecy, like it was from the 2nd century through to the 18th century. So what happens when people allegorize parts of the scripture? Well, they simply say that it is only symbolic. It's not rooted in any real history or any real event. And there is a spiritual meaning that we can learn. Isn't that noble? There's something we can learn from this allegory which has no connection to anything real. You know, C.S. Lewis is Narnia, you know, with all the fictitious animals and stuff. You get this message, and it's a very clear message in that particular instance. But what people do with the Bible is they make this message to mean whatever they want it to mean. And the only meaning that it can't have is its literal true meaning. So an allegorical approach means that you have the freedom to make it mean whatever you want it to mean. And the only thing it's not allowed to mean is its literal true meaning. Anything else is okay. And so basically one of the favorite phrases of people is, oh, you can't know. So what happened was that the whole prophetic outline which revolves around God's covenant promises to Israel was reinterpreted allegorically to mean whatever men wanted it to mean. And what did they want it to mean? That God had rejected the nation of Israel when they rejected their Messiah and so replaced Israel with the church. So Israel is put aside, rejected, not just temporarily but forever, and now the church is in place of Israel. And so even today, many churches believe that the unconditional covenant promises that God gave to Israel now apply to the church, and Israel is forgotten and forever rejected. Do you know what this called? This doctrine is called? Replacement theology. That's it, yeah, replacement theology. The church replaces Israel. It's a false teaching. It teaches that God broke his unconditional covenant promises with Israel and has now rejected them from being his special people. Now, I challenge you to read the prophecies concerning Israel throughout the Bible. Not only are they clearly addressed to Israel, but also they can only literally be fulfilled by Israel. Like, for example, returning to the land, to the land of Israel, the rebuilding of the temple, and things like that. And I think that God knew, of course God knew, what would happen during the church age, and he made his viewpoint very clear. So I'm just going to read a couple of verses from Jeremiah. But this is the covenant that I will make with who? The house of Israel. When? After those days. Okay? We're talking about the end times. Says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin 
I will remember no more. Verse 35, Thus says the Lord, who gives a sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Now watch carefully in verse 36. If those ordinances depart, what are they? The sun and the moon, night and day, yeah? If those ordinances night and day depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. So what he's saying there is that as long as there's night and day, as long as the sun and moon are still shining, then Israel will be his nation. And verse 7, Thus says the Lord, If heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. Now, remember Israel rejected the Messiah, right? Can we measure heaven? Even today we still can't measure heaven. Okay, the heavens. It's impossible. It's too big. Can we search out the foundations of the earth? Not really. So, if that can happen, then I will cast off all the seed of Israel. Well, God knows that they can't measure those things. They can't look into those things. So basically, it's a promise that I will never, ever cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done. People say, but Israel reject the Messiah. That's a sin that God can't forgive. No, it's not. He says, for all they have done, all the evil that they have done. Okay, He will never, ever cast them off. So this whole thing about Israel being rejected is so false. I challenge you to think of a more clear and empathetic way for God to communicate that nothing the nation of Israel does will cause him to reject them and that they will always be a nation to him. (laughs) Can you think of a more clear way that God could use to confirm that Israel would not be rejected by him, even if they reject him? I can't. And I was talking to someone recently who was brought into the replacement theology lie, and my main response to them was, that God has promises to keep. So, I encourage you to think about this. If you know anything about the character of God, you will know that God never breaks his promises. For me, replacement theology is blasphemy. It calls God a liar. It says that his promises are not unconditional and are actually based on performance or obedience or works. So, my question to you is this. If it is true that God broke his unconditional promises he made to Israel, because of disobedience, then what hope do we, the church, have? Can we say that we, the church, have been more obedient than Israel? Look at our history. It's shocking. Do you think that church history is any better than the nation of Israel, the history of the nation of Israel? Also, what about us individually? If a believer falls into sin, does that mean that God will reject them because of their disobedience? Do you see where this is going? If God is not going to keep his promise to Israel because they were disobedient, why would he keep his promise with the church and with us individually if we're disobedient? It doesn't make sense. So, it's dangerous. Romans 9-11, to I'm not going to read it now, but it clearly states that though God is disciplining Israel because of their disobedience, he has not finished with them. Rather, he will show them mercy and he will keep the covenant promises that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and the other prophets. 
So when we get to chapter 12, I'm going to explain the origin of this false teaching called replacement theology and how this very incorrect method of interpretation, which is using allegory, is the basis of anti-Semitism and the anti-Semitism which has resulted in the butchering of millions of Jews actually started in the church as a false teaching in the church. But that's in chapter 12. As a final thought on this, for those alive today, it should be obvious that God has not rejected his chosen people. If God has rejected his chosen people, then why is he still keeping his promises? Why did he bring them back into the land? That was a miracle. Why is he still supernaturally protecting them and providing for them? Why is the attention of the whole world now constantly focused on the Middle East, especially Israel, if Israel has nothing to do with God's plan anymore? It doesn't make sense. Verse 10. I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So this is the promise that the church will not go through the tribulation. It shows that the rapture comes before the tribulation. So why? So let's go through this and figure it out. Uh, Here's a quote from David Guzik. Most Bible scholars see this hour of trial as a prophetic reference to the messianic woes, the great tribulation which precedes Jesus' earthly kingdom. Jesus promised to keep these Christians from that hour of trial. But for the tribulation saints, in the tribulation period, even in the first three and a half years, multitudes will be killed. The trials get worse as they go along, but for the tribulation saints, those who believe during that seven-year period, it's going to be awful and they'll be martyred. We'll get into that later. So this is describing a time of trial which shall come, which is future. Okay, shall come is future, it's future tense, and upon the whole earth. So the Roman Empire did not control the whole earth. Even World War I and World War II did not affect the whole world. It involved many countries, but not the whole world. So in contrast, this coming trial will affect every person on the globe. It's going to be inescapable. And the tribulation is the only event that fits this description. And... It says that I will also keep you from the hour of trial. Now, I just want to introduce you, you probably already know, but the four beliefs concerning the timing of the rapture relative to the seven-year tribulation period. There's a pre-tribulation rapture, pre-tribulation rapture, and the rapture happens before the seven-year tribulation. That's the understanding that a pre-tribulationist would have. There's those who believe in a mid tribulation rapture, and they believe the rapture happens near the halfway point of the seven-year tribulation. And then you've got those who believe in a post-tribulation rapture, where they say the rapture happens at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And the fourth point of view is there is no rapture or tribulation or thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ, and this is the typical allegorical interpretation of prophecy. So. I believe in the first one, the pre-tribulation, where the rapture happens before the seven-year tribulation. But I just want to point out that there's other viewpoints and that it's okay to have different viewpoints. There's godly men and women who have different viewpoints. And 
was listening to a message from Hal Lindsey and he used to have big arguments with Dr. Walter Martin. And Dr. Walter Martin is the guy who wrote The Kingdom of the Cults. You know, that book explaining all the cults and stuff. He was a guy who really knew his Bible. And so Hal Lindsey, who's a pre-tribulationist, would argue extensively with Dr. Walter Martin, who was a post-tribulationist. <laughs> and then when it came dinner time, they'd say, okay, let's have dinner. So basically, they didn't agree. Two Bible scholars, they didn't agree. So I'm not expecting everyone to agree, but I'm going to be teaching from the pre-tribulation or rapture point of view. And if you want to hear the other points of view, then you can listen to someone who teaches on that point of view. So it's probably good to do that and see the different arguments with the different views. But I think it's too confusing if I try and put all the views together. So I'm just going to teach one. So I myself think that the rapture will happen before the tribulation. And I think verse 10 supports that view. So I'm just going to put this up. It's Revelation 3 verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from Greek, ek. That word from is ek. Uh, the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So let's just have a look. Does this verse imply an escape before the Great Tribulation? Like people, the church is taken away before the Tribulation starts? Or does it promise protection in the mid or post-Tribulation rapture? So each side believes this passage supports their position. So let's have a look. Those who believe the church will be here on earth during this time of Great Tribulation focused on Jesus' command to persevere. They say the context demands seeing this as a protection that enables the faithful to persevere in that period. On the other hand, those who believe that Jesus will come for his church before this time of great tribulation note that protection is promised from the very hour of the trial, not just from the trial itself. They also point out that the great tribulation will be a worldwide inescapable cataclysm as predicted in Matthew 24, 21, and Revelation chapter 6, 8, 9, and 16. So, for me, I think the best understanding, the most logical interpretation, is that this verse points to a pre-tribulation rapture. Why? Because kept my command to persevere is in the past tense. It shows that it's something that Christians have already done before the hour of trial, because it says, because you have kept my command, to persevere. It's past tense. In contrast, the hour of trial has not yet come. It shall come upon the whole earth. Okay? So, the promise is a reward for past perseverance, not the equipping to persevere in the future. Does that make sense? Therefore, as far as the Philadelphian church was concerned, the rapture of the church was presented to them as an imminent hope. Because they had been faithful to persevere, they would be spared the judgment to come. And the word from is the Greek ek, which means out of. Now John could have used the Greek preposition apo, which means away from. If John wanted to say that they're going to be sheltered in the tribulation, he would have used the word apo, but ek means out of. You're removed. And also, you're not present during the hour of the tribulation. So during that time, you are not there. It's the hour of the tribulation, you're not there. 
not just avoiding the tribulation, the events of it, but actually avoiding the time of it. And another evidence that the church does not go through the tribulation is found in the next part of the verse where it says, those who dwell upon the earth. Now who is this referring to? Who is being tested? To test those who dwell on the earth. Who is being judged? So the phrase those who dwell upon the earth is used at least seven times in the book of Revelation and it refers all the time of those who are not saved. I'll give you one example, Revelation 17.8. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. We know as Christians that our names are written in the book of life. That's a promise that we've already been through in the earlier churches. Therefore, this test is for unbelievers, not the church. God takes the church out of the world before he judges the world. Those whose names are not written in the name's book of life. So this verse shows that God is going to keep us, the church, out of ek, that hour of testing which is aimed at those who dwell on the earth. Now, those who dwell on the earth, what's a contrast? Well, as Christians, guess what? Our dwelling place is in heaven. We might walk on the earth, but our dwelling place is in heaven. That's what the scriptures say. We have been seated in heavenly places in Jesus, Ephesians 2.6. We do not dwell on the earth. Our life is hidden in Jesus, Colossians 3.3. And we are citizens of heaven, Philippians 3.21. So I just read those verses quickly. They're really encouraging. Ephesians 2.5 and 6. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So even now, positionally, we are sitting together with Christ. Colossians 3.3 If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is where? hidden with Christ in God, who is seated at the right hand of God. And then Philippians 3.20-21, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. So we're not dwelling on the earth, we're walking on the earth, but our focus is on heaven. That's where we dwell. And that's where our heart and mind are. So, when we come to chapter 4, we'll see more evidences that I believe that show that the church won't go through the seven-year tribulation period. Okay, verse 11 says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. So, it says there, Behold, I am coming quickly. And the quickly is the Greek word, taku, like tachometer. You know the tachometer? And you rev your engine, the tachometer goes up. So it means suddenly as opposed to soon. Behold, I am coming suddenly. So when he does come, it's going to be quick. But it doesn't mean it's going to be soon. Does that make sense? There's a difference there. 
the idea here is that the Lord could come at any moment. So only those who have the pre-tribulation viewpoint can say it could be today. Jesus could come now. It could come suddenly. Whereas if you're a mid-tribulationist or a post-tribulationist, you can't say that because you have to say, well, the Antichrist hasn't revealed himself yet, so Jesus can't come today. So Jesus can't come suddenly. And that's the idea from this verse. Basically, it could be today. That's the heartbeat of biblical prophecy. Now, as a result, we should be preparing for his coming. We don't want to be doing something that we would be ashamed of when Jesus comes back and snatches us away. That's this whole idea of purifying ourselves. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, it says this, Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And verse 3 is important. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. We are expecting him to come back. So the idea, this pre-tribulation rapture, the idea that Jesus could come back at any time, it keeps us pure because we don't be doing anything we'd be ashamed of when he comes. It's like the parables where the master goes away and he's going to come back at any time. There's nothing has to happen before he comes back. And remember some of the servants were doing the wrong thing and getting drunk and all that kind of stuff. But the other servants were faithful and so they didn't know the hour that the master was going to come back. Verse 11. Hold fast what you have. So the church at Philadelphia must not depart from its solid foundation. Now we have to go back to chapter 3, verse 8, where God commended them for some things. And one of those things was, I have set before you an open door. And we talked about that being evangelistic opportunity. Jesus said to them, you have a little strength. What's that? That was reliance on God. And he said, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And that's their faithfulness to the Lord. So God is asking them not to depart from those things. Keep on sharing the gospel. Keep on relying on the Lord and stay faithful to Jesus. Keep his word. Do not deny his name. So just remember that as we hold fast, that this is what our life will look like. Evangelism faithfulness and reliance on God. One thing that's hit me is that God has already given us everything that we need. So I had this idea. And imagine you're going for a big hike. And someone's already gone before you and put the water and the food at the various stops along the way. And so as you're walking along, oh, getting thirsty oh, there's water great I'm hungry oh there's some food so if we're walking along that path that God has for us then everything we need is already provided it's already there but we can choose to go off that path or we can choose to seek our own provisions do things on our own strength and we don't accept what he has already given us now how do we access what is already provided or it's by our faith. 
If we're walking in the flesh, we won't see it. But if we're walking by faith, we will receive what he's already given us. So the Church of Philadelphia is God's will for his church. And that's what we should be aiming for. Jesus had nothing bad to say about this church. And what did he characterize it by? Evangelism. I've set before you an open door. Reliance on God. You have a little strength. And faithfulness to Jesus. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. So, hold fast. That's what God's message is to us today. Hold fast. Do not give up. Do not lose hope. And do not get weary. In Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1, 4 and 5. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. And Colossians 1, 23 if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Okay? Grounded and steadfast. Hold fast. Hold on to that hope of the gospel. And why does this say to hold fast? Because we can so easily move away from the hope of the gospel. Then in verse 11, he also says, Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Okay, Jesus says, I'm coming suddenly. So hold fast in order that you don't lose your crown. Okay, everyone put their hand on their head and feel their crown. <laughs> we don't have a crown, do we? Not a literal physical crown. So what is this saying? We're saying, I don't have a crown yet. How can I lose what I don't yet have? What does this mean? Well, actually there are several crowns. Crown of life and all that kind of stuff. If we go to 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, there's a particular crown which is related to evangelism. And what's this church all about? Evangelism. Okay, reaching out, being faithful to God to share God's love with other people. So the crown I believe Jesus is referring to here is what Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. So the New King James Version first. For what is our hope or joy? Or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. And the New Living Translation says, After all, what gives us hope and joy? And what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before the Lord Jesus when he returns? It is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. And Daniel 12.3, remember what the angel says to Daniel? Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So there's going to be great reward for those who make the effort to put the Great Commission into practice and go and reach out to people and lead them to Christ and disciple them. Now, now we can ask the question, who may take my crown? Remember it says that no one may take your crown. Actually, in the original language, the idea is that if they fail to hold fast, their crown, that is their reward, would be given to someone else. Okay? 
So the idea is it's not going to be stolen by another person, but rather it will be given to another person. So taken in the sense that it will be given to another person. On a quote from a guy called Havner, he said, Never forget that the man most likely to steal your crown is yourself. Never forget that the man most likely to steal your crown is yourself, that is to rob you of your reward. The only person who rob me of my reward is me. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. You are in no greater danger from anyone or anything than from yourself. We can rob ourselves of our reward if we don't hold fast. So the idea is that if we don't complete the works that God has prepared in advance for us, Ephesians 2.10, which will result in a reward for us, then God will get someone else to do it. Does it make sense? And the other person will then get the reward. So instead of us receiving the reward, the reward will go to someone else. God's going to talk to that person somehow. If we don't do it, someone else will. God will have to use somebody else. Uh, Verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So, he who overcomes. I love this. What does it mean to be an overcomer? Put your hand up if you're an overcomer. Who's an overcomer here? Okay, how do we overcome? Here's a verse that will give us some clarity. 1 John chapter 5, verses 3-5 to For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So, we don't overcome by working harder or putting more effort into things, but rather simply by trusting God and depending on Him. Notice it says the victory is past tense, has overcome. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it means you have already overcome the world. How? How is this true? Well, Jesus did it for you. And Jesus overcame the world. And because I'm in Christ, I'm also an overcomer. In Christ, I have overcome the world. Jesus has done it for me. His victory is my victory. That makes sense? All we need to do is walk in the victory that we have already received to work it out practically. How? Well, it's by faith. What does faith look like? We read our Bibles, we obey it, we pray, we fellowship, we evangelize, all as we trust the Lord. And simply put, just make your relationship with God the most important part of your life. Verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. So this has a historical application. You notice with all these churches, Jesus relates things back to the history of the particular city. So, a pillar. What's that got to do with the Church of Philadelphia? Well, the ancient city of Philadelphia suffered from frequent earthquakes. And if you've noticed, 
When a building collapsed in an earthquake, especially the way they used to build back then, often all that remained standing were the, the pillars. These massive pillars that they built these temples with and buildings. So Jesus offers us this same strength to remain standing in him when everything around us crumbles. When everything is shaking, we are on our rock, immovable. Jesus is our rock, our foundation. So the pillar holds up the building. The faithful are the pillars of the church. And the pillars are supported by the foundation. And the foundation, of course, is Jesus himself. Nothing can be built except on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And he shall go out no more. So the citizens of Philadelphia, I'd hate to live there because they got lots of earthquakes. And what would happen is as the tremors started, everyone would run out of the city. Because if they stayed in the city, if it became a, a serious earthquake, then they'd get crushed by flying stones and masonry and you know all that kind of stuff. And then when the earth was quiet again, when it stopped shaking, they would come back into the city. So here when it says, and he shall go out no more, it's saying there's nothing to fear. You don't have to keep fleeing and coming back, fleeing and coming back. You can just stay. You're rock solid. It's a picture of our permanence and stability with God. As an overcomer, we have a place of permanence and stability with God in contrast to an uncertain place in this world, a fearful place in this world. Remember, 1 John 4.18 says that perfect love casts out fear. And the Christian is the only person on this evil planet who has a good reason to be completely fearless. We don't have to fear anything. We're like these pillars on the foundation of Christ. We cannot be shaken. Verse 12, I write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and I write on him my new name. So this works together well with the image of a pillar. What they would do is have these pillars, build a pillar in one of the temples or civic buildings. And if you were a faithful city servant or a distinguished priest, guess what they'd do? They'd write your name on the pillar. And why would you do that? It's an honor. I quote here, History tells us that Philadelphia honored its illustrious sons by putting their names on the pillars of its temples so that all who came to worship might see and remember. So an application for us. These are some of the rewards of being faithful, of walking by faith, of overcoming the world. We receive many names. The names of God, the new Jerusalem, and the new name of Jesus. That's pretty special, isn't it? And why? What does it mean? Well, for us personally, it's the mark of identification. It shows who we belong to. It's our identity. And it's also a mark of intimacy because it shows that we are privileged to know him in ways that others are not. So hold fast because there's benefits. We will know Jesus in a more intimate name. For Jesus to share his name with us, it's a special thing, intimate thing. And verse 12, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. This is a reference to Revelation 21.2, which describes the new heavens and the new earth. This is a reference to eternity to come. This is what Abraham was looking forward to and what we should be looking forward to as well. Because, why? Because it's pretty? Because it's sparkling, shiny? 
No, it's because it's where Jesus is. Hebrews 11, 9-10, this is an application for us. That we are pilgrims and we should be having our eyes focused on eternal city, eternity with Jesus. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10, And even when he, Abraham, reached the land, God promised him he lived there by faith. For he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. And then Hebrews 11, 13-16, All those people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back, like Abraham could have gone back to Ur. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So when it says here, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, this church is persecuted, but evangelizing, has little strength. Their eyes, like Abraham, are on the new Jerusalem, the city coming like a bride from heaven. It's like a wedding gift, basically. So, the application here, are we looking forward to the New Jerusalem, the city made by God, where we will live forever and ever with Jesus, our eternal home? Are you living like a stranger or nomad down here? Or are you making your home here? So, where's your focus? So, I might just finish it there. Father, I thank you for the way that you have given us all these signs and metaphors and references to other parts of the scriptures, Lord, where we can find encouragement, we can find hope. And when we understand it as the church in Philadelphia would understand it, we realize that they were greatly encouraged. Put your eyes on the eternal things. You'll be a pillar. You won't be shaken. You remain standing. It's okay. Lord, help us to be like the Church of Philadelphia. They were faithful. Lord, they were evangelists. They shared the gospel with those around them. And Lord, they just loved you and they were faithful to not deny your name. Lord, in their everyday life, they demonstrated your character, your love to those around them. Lord, help us to hold fast to this truth, Lord, and to remember that you can come back at any time. Help us to purify ourselves with this thought that it could be today. And we want to be doing what you want us to be doing, to make the most of every minute, because we know that it could be our last before we go to be with you. So help us to purify our thought with this expectation of your soon return. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.